Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show. We're committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm Clarence Boone. From the Revolutionary War to present-day conflicts, Women have proudly served in the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard as nurses, pilots, engineers, soldiers, and other specialties. And during World War I, about 35,000 women officially served as nurses and support staff. Nonetheless, many Black women also broke barriers while serving in the United States military. These women worked on the front lines or provided support to U.S. soldiers and civilian employees. Some of these stellar women include Command Sergeant Major Mildred C. Kelly. Mildred C. Kelly served in the U.S. Army from March 1947 to April 1976. In 1972, she became the first Black female Sergeant Major in the United States Army. Staff Sergeant Joyce B. Malone. Malone was originally a Fayetteville civic leader who enlisted in the Marines in 1958, where she served four years. In 1974, Malone became the first and the oldest Black woman to earn airborne wings in the United States Army Reserve. Brigadier General Hazel W. Johnson Brown, becoming a nurse was Hazel uh, Johnson Brown's dream. One of Johnson Brown's assignments included Japan, where she trained nurses on the way to Vietnam. She made history after being promoted in 1979 to Brigadier General. And then Major General Marcellite Jay Harris, retired as a major general in 1997, the highest-ranking female officer in the Air Force and the nation's highest-ranking African-American woman in the Department of Defense. Sergeant Danielle Wilson. Wilson served in the U.S. Army and became the first African-American woman to earn the prestigious Tomb Guard badge. She became a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknowns January 22, 1997. And carrying on with this fine tradition of service, we have a woman of color whom we have the pleasure of speaking with this evening, Dr. Alfreda Carmichael, enlisted in the United States Air Force and was a contract specialist. While in the military, she deployed to multiple locations, including a combat deployment to Iraq. Dr. Carmichael served as the first female president of Montfort Point Marine Association, Chapter 10. She is currently the National Treasurer and National Scholarship Director for National Montfort Point Marine Association. And with that, I'd like to say welcome to Dr. Carmichael. Welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, Dr. Carmichael. We're so glad to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. 
you know, I my hat goes off twice to women who serve in the in the in the in the uh, armed forces. One, uh, just because the expectations have to be incredibly high for you to serve, and then two, uh, just coming in and and just giving your potentially giving your lives in service to our country. Let me be the first to say thank you for your service. Uh, we wanted to ask several questions this evening as far as uh, the adjustment to the military. How was that for you? I came from a military family. My parents weren't military, but all my uncles were. They all served. Um, but as a female, my parents didn't want me to be in the military because I was the first in my family to go in the military. Um, they just wanted me to stay home and just um, work. Um, but I had a different goals hearing my uncle's stories and travel. And I love to travel um, and it intrigued me. And that's the reason why I wanted to join the military, really just to travel. Mm. You know, I, if, if our audience could, could have seen your uh, facial expression, as you described, they all just wanted me to stay at home. And you, that, <laughs> that facial expression said, I want to have none of that. <laughs> and uh, you no doubt you heard the stories um, and you, you had just envisioned yourself in that role and you and you followed your dream. You you signed up. Now, what did they do when you signed up and you came home and told them I, I signed up? The first time. Well, there's two times I signed up. The first time I signed up or I thought I was signing up when I um, was about to graduate high school and. My parents had said, well, we want you just to wait um, because you may go to school. You may go to college. And I just thought, well, I may, I may go to college, but who's going to pay for it? But I waited and my mom prayed on it. And two weeks later, I got a full ride to go to school. So I put aside college and then um, put aside the military. And then after um, I got out of the military, I mean, um, college, I wanted to be FBI agent. And they told me I need military experience. And so I told my parents, I'm joining the military. And my mom and my church members was asking me why. They said, you got this education. Why do you want to go in the military? And I still wanted to travel, but I wanted to be an FBI agent. So they had, they had no choice. I mean, at the time, time was grown. So I just, I just stepped out and left. <laughs> but my parents were not happy about it at all, especially my mom, um, who didn't go to grad, who, did, who didn't go to my boot camp ceremony, so she, you know, showed me that she was not happy. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I was okay with that because she was staying with my sister, who was just having a baby too, so being a first grandma okay. too. But um, it was interesting. They supported me um, once I got in. Um, they wanted me to be an officer, but I didn't want to do it right away. So I went enlisted in the Air Force first. But when I decided to be an officer, that's when the um, struggle began when I was in the Air Force because I was told I couldn't. They said, once you're enlisted, you stay enlisted. And that was kind of defeating the whole purpose of me joining the military. I started liking it. But I had family members who said that's not the case. Maybe you need to find someone else that looks like you that will encourage you to be an officer. Mm-hmm. So that's what I seeked out to do. And then I joined the Marine Corps and became an officer in the Marine Corps. So you transferred from the Air Force to the Marines. Yes. 
and that's possible to do. I, I never, I thought once you signed up with one branch, you were, you were there. Nope. You could do an inter-service transfer. Um, and they look at it as a promotion. If you do a lateral move, they don't like you doing that. But because um, I wasn't being promoted as officer in the Air Force, I was able to do that inter-service transfer into the Marine Corps as an officer because I already had my education. Okay. Okay. My question to you is you talked about your uncles talked about serving the country. And I assume not all of their experiences were that great. So what, what were they saying that made you think, oh, this is something I've got to do? They didn't tell me their war stories until until I got into the military, but they just shared their experience of um, living in Germany, um, just seeing the world on someone else's dime. So that was the more part that intrigued me the most. Um, And just meeting new people, because I love meeting new people and getting involved and being um, a part of someone else's culture. Mm -hmm. So they knew... um, that's something that I would like to do myself. They yeah. didn't try to encourage me to do it, but they just talked around me, you know, and I, their kids, none of their kids did it, but I did. Yeah. Well, I wanted to tell you this. I had, I had asked a couple of black females that we knew locally. And the first woman that I asked said, I don't want to do the interview. In fact, when I got out, I burned my uniform. I didn't want nothing to do with it. And the second black female I asked didn't want to talk about it. So, I, and that piqued my interest even more. I knew I wanted to do a show on black women in the military. I was curious about a black woman signing up to serve our country. Um, and I figured that other people would be interested in that topic too. So having said that, that two women it, it appears to me had bad experiences from it. It seems like your experiences were pretty much the opposite. Uh, no, I had some bad experience, but it took me a long time to get there to talk about it. Yeah. After a lot of counseling and actually my mental health counselor, um, I had to learn to work on myself first if I could work on others. So there was a lot of um, setbacks in the military, just like in the Air Force. I was told by a white man that I couldn't be an officer. Um, and he had, you know, kind of, it was my captain at the time. He said, well, um, you need to be, you need to have your education and you need to go to school in order to be an officer. Until you do that, um, it's not going to happen for you. I said, well, you know something, I have two bachelor's degrees. And he looked at me, he's like, no, you don't. And he's, I'm going to write you up for lying. So he tried to write me up for lying. And he went to, you know, reported me. I was disrespecting the officer and impersonating that, you know, it was called, it was something called where you're lying. I forgot what those charges were. But when they pulled my records and they found that there was no case because I had two bachelor's degrees. Then he started treating me some type of way. And at that time, I was just so frustrated because I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't have to act like or walk around and tell you, oh, I have all these degrees, that I'm intelligent. I don't have to do that. You should just see in my work. And I'm not the type of person that will boast about my, you know, diplomas and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was very um, disheartening when that happened. 
but I didn't let it um, discourage me. It made me um, want it more. I wanted to prove to him that I can do it. And one day I'll be better than you. So, yes. so that's why I taught my uncle, I told my uncles what happened. He's like, you need to talk to someone that looked like this. Mm-hmm. Because that's not the case. So in the Air Force, they weren't willing to, because um, I had to have to be signed off by my officer to um, let me do a, um, a change in, um, like, um, what is it called? A change in grade has to go through all this promotional status. But I went to different branches of service in the Marine Corps, just said, yeah, we could take you as is. Yeah. But you got to do some work. You know, they say I lose 30 pounds. So I do those things. And yeah. I had to work with the Marine Corps on my um, off time from the Air Force. I did that for about six months to lose the weight and to learn more about the Marine Corps before they even accept me. And then I went to OCS to become an officer in the Marine Corps. Well, what good came out of being in the military? What would you tell somebody that's 18, uh, young black female, 18, getting out of high school? uh, What good came out of it? You know, like education, homes, employment, health care, whatever. I was definitely health care because you don't have to worry about health care. You have health care for life. Um, I didn't realize until working in... um, at the college or at the school system that healthcare is expensive. You got to pay on your own. And I complained about paying maybe $30 a month for my whole family to have healthcare where they're looking at hundreds of dollars. And then also looking at the education piece where since I'm a hundred percent disabled, um, they're, my kids are covered to go to school. Whereas, um, no, I still save money for the college, but if you didn't have that cushion, then you're looking at paying for your college education. College is expensive. I'm about to send one to college right now, and I still got to come out my pocket. And it's expensive, but it's not as expensive if I had that. If I didn't have that military helping me out um, with that um, tuition. Mm-hmm. Okay, Clarence. I have a question related to. Uh some of the obstacles you overcame both probably in the natural with, with uh, boot camp training and, and some of the other uh, trainings that they take you through, especially if you had to go through the transformation of losing 40 pounds, that wasn't just me and go take a little hike around the block, but they, they probably put you through the ringer. Uh, let me ask you this. Was your story that you just shared, was that just unique to, women of color or was this unique to women in the service could you could you perhaps point a finger and say you know they're treating all of us this way or was it they treat women of color uh, they, they heap more burden on them i would say um for that experience in the air force i i just think i was racist to be honest with you but then mm-hmm. my marine corps um I realized it's just the same because being a female officer, there was, I could count, there was 32 of us of all ranks. That's all there was in the Marine Corps when I went in of female officers. And it's always been, it has still today been that same round. You don't see more than about 30 women 
of officers in the Marine Corps. And we all sit around, we talk, the ones that I went, um, went to OCS and TBS with and learned from, um, we talk about our experience and how, I remember the first guy I met, he was like, oh, they let women in. They, and, you know, they know they let women in, but then like he said, oh, they let your kind in. And I'm like, what's my kind? And you know, he's like, you know, I'm like, no, I don't know. You know, you know, you know, I'm just surprised you're an officer. You're, I said, why? Because I'm smart. I'm a female. And he said, uh, he just looked at me and he like walked away. But I know even during training, I had some obstacles where um, males would um, mark you low on leadership because you get you viewed by your peers. And if I outran, outran a Marine, um, which I've done, if I did more pull-ups, because at the time I was doing pull-ups, out did men on pull-ups, I was called a show-off or showboat. Mm. When I was just trying to do above and beyond physically to prove that I'm worthy or capable of doing just as good as a man will do. But on the markings and I still have some of those markings I kept them it was just you know I lack tack I uh, women you know should just stay home I just even told you're better off just to be home and barefoot and pregnant you say you're too pretty to be a marine you just need home barefoot and pregnant and and that came from my major. So when you have your supervisor telling you this, you know, like, I'm like, okay, sir, thank you. And I just keep it moving because I don't want to be disrespectful. But yeah. if a female gets, you know, in the Marine Corps, a lot of people cuss. I'm not a cusser. Um, it's just not me. And I didn't allow anyone in my area to cuss. And they would say, oh, you're sensitive. I say, no, you should have more intelligence in your vocabulary to not cuss. If, you're, if your brain is that small that you have to cuss, then there's a problem. But then on my fitness report, which I kept all of them, it says I like tack because of what I said, how I said it. So um, if, you were, if you were straightforward, if you were uh, assertive, and yeah. people like to confuse aggressive with assertive, but if you were assertive, straightforward, uh, focused, then they felt threatened. Yep. Or they'll say you're emotional. I'm like, how am I emotional? I'm passionate about what I say, but let someone else say the same thing. It's okay. So it seemed like there was double standards. And I mean, when I got out the military, I got out when it became not fun anymore and what became more political. And I've always said I would only stay at a position if I was having fun. And I loved it. And I loved the military up until I got promoted to captain when I'd seen more um, politics being played mm-hmm. where I was okay. I was, I had full authority to write up someone who was black if they'd done something wrong. But at the same time, if someone that was white who did the same thing, they were like, oh no, we're going to give them another chance. And I've done a lot of fighting back and forth in the military on that and I was just tired of fighting. I was like, I'm, it's, to me, it wasn't, wasn't worth it to me. 
it was and it wasn't. I just, I just kind of just got tired of a lot. I want to ask you a question that in my travels, I've been asked. Why do you love a country that doesn't love you? And you served a country that appears doesn't love you. Can you answer that? Because you think you're going to be the change that's needed. You think maybe this is, maybe I'll, it'll stop, it'll, it'll, by people seeing me, it'll encourage others to be a part of it and we can make a change. And you just have that sense and then you meet other women like you and then you're like, you're excited. And then when you get separated because of orders, then it, it kind of slaps you in the face again. Or you hear a female getting charged with something that was benign, but a guy could have done the same thing and he gets promoted. So... Well, I'd like to just take a moment to tell our listening audience that if you've just joined in, you're listening uh, to our special guest this evening as we honor women who served uh, on the special Memorial Day broadcast. Uh, We are speaking uh, with Dr. And I pause because I almost lost the place here. Dr. Alfreda R. Carmichael, who enlisted in the United States Air Force and was a contract specialist. And while in the military, she deployed to multiple locations, including a combat deployment to Iraq. She's recounting some of her, her memories while in the service. And some so far have been painful, but it's been beneficial for us the listening audience. Um, tell us about your deployment to Iraq. I was um, in the Marine Corps at the time as a, um, what was I promoted then? I think I was a lieutenant then. And um, I just had my baby, my first baby. Um, so I deployed like five months after having her. And so I was already dealing with separation. And there was, um, I was a comptroller, so I'm in charge of money. So my job in the military in Iraq um, was different. Just to back it up, I was very naive when I joined the military, to be honest with you. I didn't think women deployed. I didn't think we um, go to war. So... I thought when then I thought when they told me I was going to Iraq, I said, oh, okay, I'll probably be behind the zone. I'm not going to be in zone, meaning end zone is where the fight is. And I found myself, I'm in the fight. Not only I'm in the, not in, I'm in the fight, I'm on the convoys. So when the Marines go out to, um, you know, do convoys and survey the area or they're doing, um, they're making any attacks. My job as a comptroller was to carry money um, around and I would pay families off or pay them. Um, we had like a list of what we would pay them. So we, if we um, damaged your door, you know, blew your door up or killed your husband by accident air, we would pay you on the spot. Um, that was my job. And it was little amount, like $200, $300 which is huge there that would go very far there. So that's what my job was. So I would be the one at first I had a suitcase, which didn't help, didn't, didn't help me in the beginning until I convinced them to put it in a um, 
Alice pack or Alice sack, which is on my back. So I had the money. I carried it with me everywhere I went. Um, so my job was just to really issue money out to those that we accidentally damaged our homes um, during whatever mission we're working on. So anytime the Marines went out, me and my major would alternate. He would go out, I would go out. So that way one person wasn't doing it. You know, I, wow. I think of what you just described and, and I just had one quick follow-up. Uh, you know, it, it's being in the service, it has to, to work on your, your value sets. Um, and it has to work on the belief system that you have going in. One, you didn't think that they would put you in a super hot zone, but nevertheless, you accepted that challenge and you went. But then when you're, as a comptroller, distributing, dispersing funds for loss of property, yeah, I can understand that. But then if someone's family member happens to be caught in a line of fire in an accidental uh, action and, and they're killed, then you have to wrap your mind around, I am giving them X amount of money um, to help them through this situation. But then you're thinking, this is more money than they'll probably maybe make in, I don't know how many months. And it's got to be a conflict within you. And I just, can you talk a little bit about that? I had to think about them as, um, items instead of people to kind of um through your training through our training so we didn't look at um even if we had to shoot someone we didn't look at them as um as a person we looked at them just as an item or a figure um and so when i paid the money out i i just put in the envelope and gave it to them and the military, um, they had their translators, they would just say what it is. And my list, it was like, if it really, like if they, someone passed away, we killed someone, it was only about two or $300 we would give them depending on their gender. Um, the male, yes, we'll give you that much. But if a female would may only give you $50 in that, and they weren't making that much money for the whole year. So their, their, um, income at the time, I think then, might have been a thousand a year they were making thirteen hundred thirteen hundred dollars a year um, was their household income. So we didn't give a whole lot out. Um, you would think a life a life is worth more, but and if a child was killed, if it was a boy, you get more um, than a girl. Um, I think my biggest. Um, thing that I still relive is just seeing um, children. It's not so much children. Um, children will come up to you, but children would, um, family members would, um, they'll be like the suicide. Um, they would bomb, you know, they would cover their child with um, you know, regular clothes. You wouldn't know anything. And then they would get close to a troop and then they would detonate the child and the child is going to go to Allah um, because yeah. they have the child as sacrifice um, for the greater good. And just seeing that, I think, hurt me more than seeing um, like an adult pass away. 
you know, is just seeing the child, especially the child's innocent or seeing the child come with you at a, with a gun and you're trying to tell the kid to, sh- you know, stop and the kid's not stopping. And then they're shooting the kid because, yeah. you know, that's what we're trying to do. Did your service in Iraq make you appreciate being an America in an American? It did. And it didn't. I mean, when I was in Iraq, I'm, I was like, why are we here? I mean, a lot of times, even I think about now, like when we go to war, I'm like, why are we going to war? We have all this stuff going on in our own country. Why are we, fo- why are we focused on someone else's country? And I understand what's going on in the world, but we got a whole lot of things that's going on in our world in the United States that could be resolved with instead of spending money at another country, we could just spend it in our own country. We could get rid of homeless, all this money that we like to me, I just feel like we gave away. Um, yeah. It could have been benefiting our own people. Um, and then I think my problem was seeing that um, if we have, um, like, when we're going to countries and they have their um, war, and it's usually a religious war, it's going to be hard to resolve. It's been going on for years and years and years. Um, mm-hmm. But how can we go to another country and help defend them when we won't even defend our own home? So I think that's kind of the issue I have with with just us as Americans. Did you know about uh, the history of African Americans in the military before you know starting starting back during the uh, Revolutionary War? I did not when I joined the military. And it wasn't really until after the military, I um, really start learning the history, especially when I got with my point members and Marines and they kind of told me the history and I start reaching back and reading on African-American history and how we were treated. And, and it just seemed like the cycles going on. I read a book about uh, Chappie. I can't think of his last name. The first African-American Marine. Had you heard about him? Not Chappie, no. Okay. All right. I thought it was interesting that everything that was done to him to make him leave because they did not want to have African-Americans as Marines. Mm-hmm. And he came from the South and he, he laughed at everything they were doing to him because life outside of that was much worse. And he said for the first time in his life, he had underwear and a jacket and he was staying because he, he wasn't giving up those underwear. <laughs> I thought that was uh, interesting how, and you had said this too, that the things that were said or done to you made you stronger. You know, you have a um, tough skin and then um, just listen to my parents. I just didn't want to disappoint them. My parents would have would have loved for me to come home, but I didn't tell them my stories or things that were going on. But my mom said she could hear it in my voice. She said, mom knows when you're not, when something's not right. And I just told her, it's okay, mom. I I got it. It's okay. No worries. And she was like, and I still today, I, I think now I still haven't told her everything. Mm -hmm. I probably shared more with my uncles because they've been through it and we talked about it. 
and my mom might hear things during, you know, passing, but I really haven't told her just because I don't think I want to really want to upset her, even though it happened years ago. You know, my mom's the type of person I want to still go there and whip somebody's tail <laughs> if she could. Touching her baby, don't touch right. my baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I want to do two things. One, I want to tell our listening audience if you've just tuned in, uh, we are here hearing a r- very riveting. Uh, account of uh, the experiences of Dr. Alfreda Carmichael as she was enlisted in the United States Air Force initially and then did a inter-service transfer to the Marine Corps, which I had never thought was possible, but she did, all in pursuit of advancement, all in pursuit of, of advancement. And and I kind of looked online, uh, Liz, while, while you were talking, I think the name was Daniel Chaffee James. Uh, who was the gentleman that you were referring to. And yeah. they had a little write-up on him. Now, one thing I, I do want to talk about, um, you had a support network, your uncles, and then the uh, the individuals from Montfort Point. Uh, and some things were sort of unspoken. They didn't have to be spoken. They were just, they were understood. And so you received comfort and you received uh, affirmation. And I believe now that you have uh, gravitated as a civilian into your work with mental health with children who are marginalized, who are, who are innocent, and perhaps, uh, and I know this is helping you through healing because of some of the things that you witnessed because of war, not that you or with, because of orders, you may have had some role in that, but then again, you saw the aftermath of conflict. And I see now healing taking place. I have the advantage, Liz and I, of seeing visually you talking with us, and I could just see your face brighten as you talk about you talked about some of the things you're currently doing, which I want you to do a little bit more of now. Um, but before you do, your thoughts on what's going on in Ukraine. Um, we are not, we don't have boots on the ground, except maybe in Poland and other nearby countries, but your thoughts on Ukraine? I do feel for um, Ukraine, but un- for me personally, I just, I know there's a lot that's going on in the United States too. We have our own, we have a lot of things going on and it seemed like Anytime there's conflict in the United States, we shift the focus somewhere else so we don't have to address it. Right. Um, so if we have um, kids in our country or women in our country getting um, um, killed on the streets, we're not addressing that, but we want to go over and address someone else's country mm-hmm. and dictate what's going on there when we don't, um, I don't feel like we have the right to. Right. Um, right. So, like, me and my couple of my coworkers, we talk about that, and I just, I just told them, I was like, look, if you ask me, I think we need to, we need to focus on the United States. We got too much stuff going on. Like today, there was a shooting, you know, at elementary school. We have a lot of things that are occurring here that we're not taking care of. And if we took care of home first, then we could take care of everyone else. Right. Because we right. put money to all these other countries and you'd be surprised we spent one um it was like what was it one million dollars a week we spent 
when I was in Iraq. That money could have went to the United States. I know a whole lot of people, especially my family, they would have loved some money, you know. <laughs> but we spent that. And that was just my unit. I was a first Marine division. That was just my unit. I can only imagine other units because people had more. But that's how much I spent a week. Um, and we could have spent that here. We have uh, six minutes left. And I want to give Liz uh, time for another closing question, but you spoke of your current work with children. And can you elaborate with that? There's that smile. That's what, that's what I was waiting to see. There it is. Can you elaborate on your work with children? Oh, so I'm an educational monitor. So I monitor kids' behaviors. And I try to um, make sure that before they have a before the problem or there whatever's going on in their minds um, escalate, I try to de-escalate it. So I kind of watch their behavior and I have a list of kids that I uh, monitor, but also I just make sure I, um, I'm that counselor for all the kids. Um, if they need someone to talk to and listening ear, I tell them if you say something, I made the report it. But um, most times it's just, um, you know, middle school things you know kids mm-hmm. don't like me today like me tomorrow yeah. you know what's <laughs> going on you know like my dress like I knew haircut or I hate my haircut you know so but then there's some things where they're they're afraid because of what's going on that their kid their parents may be deploying because I'm on a military base so they may be deploying and they have that fear that something may happen to them so we kind of talk to them about um making sure we keep in contact with your parents. You know, your parents still love you. You can write to them. They may not be able to write to you right away. And I kind of, I'm really truthful to the kids because kids can read you. Mm-hmm. Tell you if you're BSing them. So I just tell them, hey, they may not be able to write to you um, right away. They may not write to you until they get home. I said, but they're going to love you just the same. Right. And you have middle age, middle school? Yes. Yeah, then that's a difficult age. Oh, yeah. that's Things smart. are changing. <laughs> yes, yeah, <that's> <laughs> age. You got to get them. That's the age I love because you got to get them quickly. Before yeah. Turn. That's a turnaround age. Yeah. And how many years of service do you have? Um, I did 12. And they gave me, um, I got out medically and I took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, overall, uh, what would you say your military experience was like? Um, it had its ups and downs. Um, but um, I would say my ups definitely was traveling. I was able to see a lot on someone else's dime. Um, didn't like Iraq. That was my down part. But yeah. other than that, um, I had... Um, made great friends and relationships and it made me grow up more and made me um, see people in different light. Um, So I know how to talk to everyone. I feel like you could be respectful to every single person. That's how I am at work. It don't matter if you're the janitor or you're the cook or you're the principal. I'm going to treat you the same with equal respect. Um, and I feel that respect um, should be given out to everyone equally. I didn't see that in the military, but I, I, for me, I stay true to myself. 
and try to do that to everyone else. Do you think it's a good idea for everybody, girls and boys, to serve their country at least two years? At one time, I would have said yes. Um, but now I say mm, no. I think no, no. Okay. <laughs> you know, they, I know they put um, uh, restrictions on GPA. You have to have a certain GPA to get in now as opposed to hmm. back maybe in the 60s or 70s when if you were living, breathing, if you were 98.6 or a little bit under that or <laughs> a little bit over, you can go on in. Or if you were a troublesome child or if you were um, a child that uh, needed guidance, quote unquote, mm -hmm. they would kind of, you know, just recommend you go. Um, but as a last resort, would you recommend the military perhaps certain branches or if you go in, sign up to do certain things? I mean, I would like, only reason why I say no is because I feel that there's going to be somebody, some politician that's going to, you know, find a loophole so their kid don't go. If it was fair across the board and everyone served at least two years in the military, like everyone, then I would say yes. But there's always going to be someone that's going to, or even people that have money or wealth, that's going to try to get out of it. And I don't think that would be fair. I feel everyone should serve at least two years. But because I don't see where it would be fair, then... No. Mm -hmm. If if you had the ear of uh, of a congressional panel that was charged with making improvements in the military, here's your platform. You know, from Bring It On. Of course, you know we have worldwide coverage, and they're going to listen in. But uh, who would you tell them? Um, look who you're promoting. Um. And make sure it's, it's inclusive. Um, make sure you're including all races at the top. Make sure there's a spread load. If when you have just like one black general, but you have like 20 white generals, is that fair? Mm -hmm. um, especially when they're qualified. Mm -hmm. so just to be fair because most people I know that are black officers we did more as an officer we had we had more education than our counterparts we always had to do more to prove ourselves but mm -hmm. we weren't promoted at the same level as our counterparts because of who we are and that's a problem yeah you know, I, I've been so mesmerized by your responses uh, that, number one, I did not really think I'd hear today. I'm so thankful that you've been open and honest and candid with us. I, I really appreciate that. But I totally miscalculated the time we have remaining. So we have about six extra minutes. Oh. Because <laughs> hey, I know Liz is ready with her question, but I, I do want to get in there. Tell us about the Montford Point Marine Association. What is that meant to you? Oh, it means everything. My, I remember the first time I um, was um, taught or introduced about the association, I was at the food court and Sergeant Major um, um, Nathaniel James, he was the past national president of Marple Point Marine Association. He approached me and he said, Captain, 
He's like, do you know anything about Muffin Point? I was like, no, sir. He was like, well, I need you to come on Thursday night at six o'clock. We're having a meeting and we're going to talk about it. And I was like, okay. And he was a short little man. <laughs> and he retired. And I went to a meeting, learned about it, and I fell in love with that. I met original Muffin Pointers. Um, and they told me their history. And they talked about why they stayed in because of, you know, going back home in the South. That was the best pay they had. And they had, you know, three meals, a bed, and they enjoyed themselves. You know, they had, they enjoyed who they were with. Um, they knew they fought for a country that didn't want them, but the result was go back and be, they weren't trying to be a sharecropper or, or doing something, a janitorial work. They want to do something that was meaningful. And they felt serving the country may break those barriers. So that's okay. All right, Liz, uh, I'm well, referring to you for about okay. four Okay, I'd like to know more about the National Mumford Point Marine Association. What do they do? Is it just to help Marines who have retired or whether you're retired or not? I, I, I've never heard of it. So I'd just like to know more about it, please. Okay, so um, what we do, we try to um, preserve the legacy of the Mumford Point Marines. And we do that through scholarships. One thing we just, I'm the scholarship director, so I'm very proud that we gave out five scholarships this year of $5,000 to um, high school students um, within the United States. And what we'll do is we'll follow those students while they go to college and we'll give them, at the end of their um, year of college, we'll give them $500 just to keep on and make sure, hey, we're still caring about you. We want to make sure you're doing well. Um, and we want to know more about what's going on in your life. Um, one thing we also do, we house the convention and our convention um, usually goes in July and we make sure we bring all those original Moffa pointers and their families together so we can kind of honor them and pay tribute to them because we wanted to let you know that, hey, we are standing on your shoulders. You know, if it wasn't, you, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here today. Um, you paved that way. You set that barrier. You're the one, you were the ones that, um, they said they don't want you, but you said it doesn't matter. I'm still here and I'm still standing. So that's what we do. We just want to make sure we honor them. And um, that's well, who who were the um, Mumford Point Marines? Was it a a group that were stationed somewhere or? Yeah, they were stationed. It was about 20,000 Marines all over the United States came. Um, they weren't considered Marines then, but they came to Camp Johnson, which is here in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and they had to build their own base. So most of the, they weren't able to go on um, um, Camp Lejeune, where all their white counterparts were trained. They had to go to Camp Johnson, which was a swampy area, and they had to build their own camp compound to train. So they came in and they built their, you know, built everything. And in a swamp. In a swamp. And those, some of those barracks and stuff are still there. Our museum is one of them. And we just, um, uh, just renovated it just recently, but it's still standing. It was out of concrete and it just, tremendous and when I talk to them off of pointers they go there and they show me hey I remember I was here this was my room I remember building this road I remember building this building so we could have a place to stay and I'm like wow that's something you know you join the military and you gotta work 
and you got to build your own. They didn't give you a tent. You outside. They're like, nah, this is what we had to do. And they were tougher on us because they knew we had to prove that we're better. We had to prove that we are here to stay. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that because I'm making a trip. Road trip, Clarence. (laughs) You know, you know, Liz, and we'll have to explain this to you offline, but Liz uh, does an historical segment for us, which will be airing after this interview. And she travels quite a bit. She collects artifacts. She has an extensive Jim Crow collection. She talks to a lot of people. She visits plantations. She visits settlements. uh, And she puts on plays about Black history. So she heads up our segment called Dark Past, Bright Future. My association with her dates back to about 18 years ago. And this is one. When we were young. When we were young and with hair. But anyway, (laughs) on that note, because time is getting away. Our, and we're, which means we have to have you back. Now, we say that a lot, but we're going to get you back here. We're going to get you back. Our thanks to Dr. Alfreda R. Carmichael for joining us as we salute the valiant service of African-American women in our nation's military service. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is Bring It On at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org. And Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone, yours truly. Tonight's assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHP News, Develop, De- News Department director is Kate Young. And program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHP, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. We leave you now with a special edition of Dark Past, Bright Future, focusing on the many rich contributions of Black women in the military. Welcome to Dark Past, Bright Future, lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. Welcome to a new edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. I'm your host, Liz Mitchell. To all of the men and women who served in the military, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate you. Now, for some background history of Black women in the military. The first person I want to talk about is Cathay Williams, the first documented African-American woman to serve in the United States Army while disguised as a man. She was born a slave and rose to become a member of the legendary Buffalo Soldiers and went by the name of William Cathay during the Indian Wars. She served our country until the ripe old age of 65. Thank you, Kathy. Air Force Lieutenant 
General Stacy D. Harris was the first African-American female three-star general who joined Air Force Reserves in 1991. She cataloged more than 2,500 hours in a military aircraft. Major Delta H. Rainey was the first African-American chief nurse commissioned as a lieutenant in the Armed Nurse Corps. She was one of 500 black nurses that served in the Army Nurse Corps during World War II. Command Sergeant Michelle S. Jones was the first African-American woman to command the Army Reserve in 2003. Jones served 25 years in the Army and retired in 2007. Lieutenant Commander Lysandra Holmes, a U.S. Coast Guard, was the first female African-American helicopter pilot. A graduate from Spelman College, Holmes received her aviator wings in 2010. In 2018, the Marine Corps announced that the then-Colonel Lorner Maylock was slated to become the first black female one-star general. Maylock, first black female Marine Brigadier General, was deployed three times with the Marine Technical Air Command Squadron 38. In 1982, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy became the first African-American woman to command a U.S. Navy ship, the USS Rushmore, and was the first to be named Vice Chief of a Naval Operations. Who was that? It was Admiral Michelle Howard, first female four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy, and she retired in 2016 after serving 35 years. Major General Irene Harris graduated as a flight nurse in 1964 from the Aerospace School of Medicine Flight Nurse Branch of San Antonio, Texas. She served 38 years in the Air Force and with the Air National Guard. Major General Irene Harris first African-American female general officer in the National Guard. Two black women graduated from the Naval Reserve Midshipman School, Women's Reserve, at Northampton, Massachusetts. Black women at one time were not allowed to join the waves until 1944. Lieutenant Ida Pickens, and Frances Willis, first African-American women commissioned in the WAVES, which was an acronym for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. Major Charity Adams was the first and only commander of an all-Black female Army unit. This unit was sent overseas to organize the mail for the U.S. service members during World War II. 
1997, U.S. Army Sergeant Danielle Wilson became the first black woman to earn the prestigious position of guarding the tomb of the unknown at Arlington National Cemetery. In 2021, Midshipman First Class Sidney Barber is the first black woman to serve as a brigadier commander at the U.S. Naval Academy. She holds the highest student leadership position at the Academy. Again, thanks to all the military men and women who served our country. You're important to me and to the rest of America. We appreciate you. This concludes this edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to Dark Paths, Bright Future, exploring the many different shades of African-American history because the true history of our people is more complex than black and white. In the words of the Negro National Hymn, sing a song full of the hope that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.